Charity Chats. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak with Dan Curry, CEO of New Philanthropy Capital, NPC. Dan has a fascinating background and work experience spanning the public, private and charity sectors, and it was a real privilege for me to speak with him. Dan and I recap on some of the funding challenges faced by charities since the pandemic started. We touch on the government's levelling up agenda and what place charities have in helping to deliver this. We also touch on a variety of other things, including mission drift, how charities need to weigh the needs of donors with the needs of beneficiaries, and also what developing a better approach with donors or funders to deliver more efficiently and effectively might look like for charities. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by fundraising platform Work for Good, our new platinum partner, who are inviting charities to get in the Christmas spirit by joining the hashtag small business star match funding campaign. This year, there's a £50,000 match pot to help charities maximise the impact of sales-based festive fundraising. Head to their website, workforgood.co.uk, that's workforgood.co.uk, to sign up for free. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dan Corey speaking about social issues and charities. So I'm delighted to be joined by Dan Corey, Chief Executive of MPC. Dan, welcome to Charity Chat. Thank you, Sam. Great to be here. It's great to have you here. And uh, I suppose if we can start by, I know you've you've got a really interesting uh, background. Your career has been fascinating. If you can tell the audience a little bit about what your background is and what led you to taking on the uh, the lead uh, role at NPC, that'd be great. No, thanks, Sam. Yeah, it's, it's been a kind of uh, an interesting journey. I mean, I'm an economist by profession and I worked in, in the civil service as an economist in, in the sort of beginning of my career. And then I worked uh, a bit for the Labour Party um, as an economist. And then I, I then was in think tank land for a bit at IPPR, which is a kind of centre left think tank. It's all good training for MPC. I didn't know it at the time, but this is all very good training. Um, and then I was um, very lucky to be a special advisor to a number of different ministers during most of the period that the Labour Party was uh, in government, um, ending up in the Treasury and then in Downing Street when Gordon Brown was Prime Minister. Um, obviously, the public uh, had other ideas in 2010, uh, didn't particularly want that to continue. Uh, and I did a couple of different jobs, including working in private sector consulting. And then I joined MPC uh, after that. And then in a way, uh, you know, I guess, you know, why I got the job and what I've tried to bring to MPC is, you know, on the one hand, we're a consultancy uh, and we do a lot of work for charities. Um, we tend to be sort of medium sized to big because obviously the small ones can't you know, afford to pay, as it were. Sure. Um, and we do it for charities and for funders, grant makers, philanthropists and so forth. And the other side is what I tend to call think tank, um, mm. because our mission is to try and make the whole sector more impactful. Sure. That's that's that, that's our, that is our mission. We are a charity. And um, and you 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 know in a sense consultancy gives you the information about what's going on it gives you the credibility, but we want to try and get to the whole gamut of different uh, organisations in in our sector as I say fund on the funder side and the charity delivery side or, or whatever you want to call them big ones little ones and all the rest of it so we try we try and put out a lot of information for free on our website that all different organisations can kind of use mm-hmm. um, we do research into things that are causing problems for small. And other charities, we have a bit of a go at the government. 
And we, we play a kind of interesting role because we are not a membership organization. We're not the Small Charities Coalition or NCBO or anything like that. Um, but that gives us a, a lot of advantages in a way. You know, there's people who run membership organizations, they're not the easiest. Uh, you've got to keep the members happy or they won't pay their subs. Um, and um, we don't have that. So we kind of say what we want to say and people kind of appreciate that. They don't always agree with us. But hmm. so I think, you know, as I say, in a funny sort of way, I can, I think I once claimed that, you know, clearly my entire career was just preparation for working at MPC. But it, it, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of true, you know, the, the combination of, of, of kind of comms and policy and then the consultancy and all the rest of it. So, you know, and I'm very lucky to, uh, to have found this job and uh, it's been great fun. Alvin, just does NPC does it have a political point of view, or, or does it depend on the the piece of work that you're doing? How kind of objective are you being in in, in the work that you do? Um, well, we're a charity; we're non non political. I mean, we we sometimes have a slight debate. Um, I mean, because essentially we want to try and improve the impact of any of any charity or any fund, whatever they're doing. Mm. Um, we tend to work with charities on the whole that are working with people. Um, although we have worked with animal charities and so forth, because you can get them more impactful. Um, and it tends to be charities and funders who are trying to work with the most vulnerable. That's what it tends to be. Uh, it's not completely. Um, and so I don't know, does that make us on one, you know, have a political view? I don't think so. We work pretty well with, um, uh, you know, with, with this government, which uh, as and with, you know, different councils of different, uh, different colours. So I don't think it it, um, it influences us really. But I mean, our, our people, we sometimes get confused because we're, you know, like other infrastructure bodies, we're not directly working with the people that all the charities want to help. What we're trying to do is help the charities do a better job. You know, almost all charities, they set off, they've got a mission, we want to help this group of people, or we want to do up this bit of land or whatever it is. And the question is, can we help them in some way by the kind of things that we talk about, the kind of things we are thinking about to do that better, get, if you like, get more impact, help more people for the resource that they've got. And, and that's what it's all about. And, and, and in many ways, to me, it doesn't particularly matter what the, what the charity is doing. Uh, the question is, can, can, we, can we do better? And I think in our sector, you know, which is full of heart, mm. full of passion, which is what makes it what it is, but we do sometimes find it hard to answer that question are we really using our resources in the best way possible to achieve our mission? We, it's a difficult question to answer in our sector. Sometimes it's not even a question that charities are asking themselves enough, in my view. And, and that's, in a sense, where we come in. So what has MPC been working on over the past few months? And what do you see as the biggest challenges that charities, large and small, are facing at the moment? No, it's a good question, Sam. I mean, you know, the sector's always got problems. And, uh, and as, as you'll know, particularly smaller charities, you know, sometimes you're just pleased you got through the month yeah. and you're still there. Um, you know, COVID was obviously a massive uh, issue for the sector. Um, it hit different kinds of charities differently uh, in different geographical regions and so forth. But in general, it was, it was difficult. Needs were up. Hmm. Funding was down. Uh, if you, on the whole, if you got money from uh, grant makers and so forth and contracts, actually they stayed reasonably okay. If you got some of your funding from uh, people running marathons or uh, charity shops, 
Uh, or even if you were running a sort of kind of social enterprise on the side, you know, mm. you, you had your charity, but it had a little coffee shop, which brought you some income. They have had all sorts of problems. So, so, so we have, we have all that issue, which I think a lot of, um, a lot of charities managed to stagger through. They tried to do what they could because uh, they saw people in need and that's what, what charities do. Mm. Uh, but, you know, a lot of them ended up with not too many reserves now. Yeah. Uh, and things like that. So that's that's problematic. I guess the other thing we've tried to do, Sam, is to try and think, you know, none of us would have wished COVID. Mm. But mm. as ever in a crisis, some things that happened were quite good and we'd like to cling on to them. We'd like the sector to cling on to them. I mean, a simple example, we suddenly all had to use digital. Yeah. Um, and the sector was very slow behind the curve on this, but we've suddenly accelerated. I mean, it's an issue for us. A lot of organisations, they had to deliver their services online. Um, and some of it, you know, actually, they probably should continue to deliver online because it worked very well for the, for the people they were trying to help. It's a bit cheaper. People do it from home. But for some people, it doesn't work at all. Um, they need the face-to-face, particularly people with complex needs. And so you need, we need to work out, you know, where we should be using digital technology and where we shouldn't. And, of course, we worry about the digital exclusion issue so that's one sort of thing we saw on the funding side funders going far more for unrestricted funding um you know it's the bane of a lot of charities life that the only money you can get is restricted you know and it's for a particular project usually has to be a new project or something and it probably doesn't contribute much to your general sort of overheads uh that you've got to have and so on and that changed a bit in the uh, during covid and again we'd like to Keep that going. And the last thing just to mention, Sam, is that in truth, a lot of charities are not great at collaborating with each other. Even if they've got the same kind of mission in working in the same locality, they sort of are competing mm. for finance, for attention and so forth. And they also find it difficult to work with the local authority or the local health um, world and so forth. And a lot of that collapsed during COVID. People just got on with it. You know, there was a crisis let's just work together and let's share the data whether we've got with you and then not get all ridiculous about these things so that was a terrific thing can we hold on to that or is it are we starting to revert and there's some signs people think that we are reverting so i think those are quite big issues i mean the last thing just to mention sam is obviously the um the, the relationship with government is kind of interesting at the moment as to what the government thinks of the sector now i don't know what the gov- government people think of when they think of the charity sector some of them just think of the big charities and they oh no whole governments don't massively like big charities because they tend to campaign and whoever's in government I, you know i've worked in government they usually want you to do something different i mean that's what charities tend to do so, so there's a bit of that but it's somehow some of the smaller charities have got caught up in that um uh, and so and there's, there's there's a little bit of tension at the minute um i think between government and the charitable sector we're not quite as as firmly sort of in their thinking as I think we should be. We don't want them interfering too much and all the rest yeah. of it. But at the moment, there's a slight, a slight battle uh, as, to, as to whether, you know, how, how they consider charities and whether they get upset if you know, charities locally or nationally campaign and all this kind of stuff. So that's an issue which we're pushing on because we think one of the ways that charities have at local level or at national level is they often, you know, they're often representing sort of unheard voices mm. uh, into the policy making process. And if you shut them out of that process, you will end up making worse policy um, and those people will not get such a good deal. So 
and you'll have less impact. So that's that's another area we've pushed on. So quite a lot of stuff, Sam. It's funny, you know, listening to what you were saying just then, it, it made me think, I, I guess um, this might sound a bit left field here, but if you bear with me. So I, I went to the shop the other day and I was trying to buy some honey and there was no honey on the shelf. And it's because of the supply chain issue we have food-wise. And when you were talking about the, um, the collaboration between charities, it made me think, is that a good analogy, do you think, for charities? That in a way, the, the charities can themselves provide or be seen as providing a supply chain for some of the difficulties in society, whether it's healthcare, whether it's uh, di- these different causes, there are different charities in some cases doing uh, very different things to help with some of the symptoms of, of uh, challenges we face in society. And sometimes there are charities that maybe could be working more closely together to provide a better supply chain. I suppose also what you're saying about government and um, whether the government also needs to be more involved in that supply of I don't know what you call it, good causes for, for communities. No, a very interesting analogy. And I, I like the picture of you queuing up and, and, and horrified. As honey find the honey. Um, I hope you yeah. found it somewhere. Or you I found did something. get the honey. That's the main that, thing I did. That, that is the main thing. First world problem right there. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think, I mean, there's a, there's a number of things. I think, um, I, I think the you know, charities often do need to work together. I mean, if you take an example of, I don't know, uh, working with people who've um, been in prison mm. uh, and we would like, uh, you know, as many to rehabilitate. Well, when they leave prison, they're going to need a bit of help with housing, probably some skills work. Um, they may need some help on, on sort of benefit advice. They may have some mental health issues. They may have lost touch with their family. Uh, you need quite a lot of different bits of, of the charity sector, as it were, to be working with them to try to give them a good life. And sometimes that joining up doesn't happen enough. So I think that's important. I mean, I think on the the government, one of the things we've tried to argue is that um, if you look at the distribution of of, of charities, and I know registered charities is only kind of part of our sectors, a lot of sort of unregistered organisations, but Mm. you do find that there's more, if you like, per head of the population in more prosperous areas than less prosperous areas. And, and, And if you think that having, you know, rich set of charities and, and, and uh, social groups in an area creates a kind of rich tapestry in the jargon social capital, then that matters. And I think, you know, government should think about that um, and, and as should independent funders about where they're funding. As I've argued, should uh, some of the larger charities, they might look at where, are, where do they have their local branches and are they in the places that really need them most and so forth. So I think that's that's important too if you like that's a yeah it, it kind of fits in your sort of supply chain analogy that we we need to somehow deliver the the, the, the things that only charities can do in all the places of of, of the uk and, and elsewhere and actually if you look at where we actually do them it, it, it's not it doesn't really match up with that map And we've, we've spoken with the likes of uh, Andrew Perkis and Deborah Alcock-Tyler in the past on the show about the relationship that the charity sector historically has had with the government. We've also reflected on the different views on how charities respond to societal changes and interface with the government. One focus that the current government has is the levelling up agenda. Um, what is it and, and what role do you believe charities have in delivering it? Well, I, I think, I mean, charities have an enormous role. I mean, and, and 
I mean, the way I think about it, Sam, is that if you like charities within a locality play at least three roles. I mean, I'm sure there's more roles. I mean, one, which are relevant to levelling up. One is if you like about, um, if you like the prosperity, employability and things like that. There's a lot of charities work on that kind of thing, getting people ready for, for labour market participation if they're far away from it, youth uh, and all the rest of it. There's another set which is, uh, if you like, about those who, who, who tend to be excluded. Mm. They're homeless, they may be uh, addicts or whatever else, and they're kind of excluded in the area and that doesn't make a good place and you need to work on those if you want to level up. So that's another set of challenges. And the last is this more thing, more this kind of creating this social capital, this feeling of civil society. There's all sorts of jargon in it, bonding and bridging social capital and charities and social organisations are crucial to that. Our criticism of government at the minute is that the, the, way, the funding streams for levelling up and even the, the rhetoric around it is all about physical infrastructure. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of places could do with some physical infrastructure, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the high street's looking a bit down on its knees or the, the, the train station doesn't work anymore or, or the you know buses are falling apart or whatever. And some of that is needed, but you do need the social side too. And, and, and it's interesting when we did a little bit of polling to ask people what would levelling up your town look like, you know, what, yeah. what matters? And we gave them a whole list of things. And things like tackling homelessness and inequality mm. and drug addiction so it came pretty high up. Actually, you know, uh, some of the top things and that some of the physical thing a bit lower down. So that, I think that we've been trying to get that point across to government, but the trouble is at the moment, the way these funds are being constructed, you know, local areas have to bid for the money. It all gets decided in Whitehall. It's not clear that that bid has to involve the local voluntary sector in putting it together. If the money is given back, it's not clear uh, to what extent some of that money will flow through to the voluntary sector and so forth. And, and we just think it's a crazy missed opportunity and it's slightly a very narrow uh, definition of what levelling up is. So we hope we've got a big change in ministers. We've got this new levelling up department with Michael Gove and so on. So we, we hope that um, maybe they'll listen a bit and, uh, and we'll get a bit more uh, of that funding going through um, and equally, you know, so many local charities, one of their key relationships is with the local authority. Don't always love them, but it's a key relationship. And obviously, local authorities have had a, a difficult financial time in recent years. So we're all kind of looking forward to the spending review in what is it about 10 days or a little bit longer than that yeah. to see whether local government gets funding, because that would be good, particularly for local charities. And do you, do you think that this levelling up agenda, do you think that there are, you know, it's likely that it would it would move existing charities to change their agenda or is it more that those charities are probably their agenda or depending on the charity but if they're working in social care or any of these similar um kind of areas that you, you mentioned that actually the leveling up agenda that ideally they charities will listen to that and think great here comes more support for our existing work well i hope it will be the latter um because they they should be and and i think you know locally not everywhere, but local sort of leaders, whether they're council leaders or health leaders or whatever, do recognise the importance of mm. uh, the charities, the voluntary sector, the community foundations on the funding side, all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, I'd say the relationship's not always easy, but on the whole, because they all care about that town mm. or whatever, they, they can work together. I think Whitehall, and I, you know, I worked in Whitehall for many years, is far too far away from where the action is. 
Um, and how can you possibly know what will work in Burnley, whether that be the same thing that works in Rochdale or Great Yarmouth? I mean, you can't possibly know that from, from Whitehall. And so to some extent, you know, I think we would all like to see the, the more funding devolved to those areas. The decisions made to some degree putting a bit of uh, uh, obligation to, to make sure the voluntary sector is at least consulted in some sensible way. Mm. And then, and then, you know, we can, our sector can do its stuff. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a, a sector which can get into places that, that others can't get. You know, we all know that certain services that, that charities provide to people, um, they, they can create, achieve results that the statutory sector never can. You know, I mean, if you're, you know, if, if you're having to deal with a social worker who technically can take your kids away, you have a very different relationship than if it's a charity. And we know that that is so important. And most people recognise this kind of stuff. And it's, it is frustrating, um, I think, that, that in general, that the sector is not seen as a key part of our kind of society and the way of dealing with some of these, you know, the big problems. You, you mentioned social care. I think it's going to be true on, on climate change, you know. Mm, I mean, if... Yeah. if um, the sector will play an important part there too, and, and it should should be part of it all. But I, I don't quite, I mean, I, I, you know, if I look back on my Whitehall days, I would say, although although actually it was a period where there was a bit more funding going to the sector and we and, and um, there was the compact and there were all sorts of other things, but nevertheless, Whitehall thinks of the voluntary sector last. Mm. Um, and that is a, that is a problem. So another area, I suppose, connecting to what you've just said uh, that we've covered over the past year or so, really before that, is how charities have struggled to fundraise during the pandemic and how philanthropy is and likely to continue to change and evolve. What should charities, large and small, seek to understand about the evolving fundraising landscape and where should they start with how to adapt to it? I think one thing, of course, that, that is always preached to organisations, big and small, is to try and have a diversity of funding. And as I mentioned a bit earlier, Sam, I mean, it, it was interesting that, that certain streams got very badly hit by COVID and others were not. And so to the extent that you had a variety, that, that was helpful. I mean, I think during COVID, I mean, you know, one, one set of funding comes from the grant makers and, you know, every good small charity is, is, is good at sort of making applications and so forth. I mean, they've changed um, a bit during COVID, as I, mm. I was saying a bit before, in terms of being more interested in funding unrestricted. I mean, what you want to some extent is a funder to say, this is a good, this is a good charity. I like what it does. Uh, and I'm not gonna just give it restricted funding for a particular project. I'm gonna give it some money and, and it will know what's the right thing to do. Now, I, I'm, I still want some accountability. I want them to tell me what they're gonna, I'm gonna say, here's the money. You decide what you're going to do with it. Tell me how you're going to work out whether it worked or not. Mm. And if I'm happy, we go along. And that would be so important, I think, for uh, organisations. And I hope that will continue. I mean, we sometimes get told by funders, because we work a lot with funders, that the charities don't ask for things, you know, that, that or, or a charity, let's say it's got funding from three or four different grant makers. And they're all asking for different information and data on different timescales. Yeah. which let's face it we're all suspicious that the funder never uses anyway that data but you know and sometimes we say why on earth do you do this and they said well if the charity came to us and say what well, we're getting some money from them and them can't you all agree that this is the data you only need one set of data you can all use it yeah. we'd agree to it but of course the 
the, 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 particularly smaller charities are very nervous about doing that. You do not want to piss off these people. You want their money. Yeah. I hope that, that you know, that, that grant makers will change those behaviours. I mean, we've done a lot of work about power dynamics and the fact that the funder holds all the aces mm-hmm. and that they really need to be much more aware of that and try and put themselves in the shoes of the, of the charity. So I think that's that's on the on the grant making side. Um, I mean, in terms of fundraising the public, which which kept going pretty well, I think, during COVID, which is impressive, although the distribution seemed to change. You know, people were more giving to health-related things or food and Captain Tom and all the rest of it. So some charities suffered. And obviously everyone is not quite sure what this, what um, as we get back to sort of in-person things, will, will fundraising go back to the way it was, those kind of public fundraising things um, or not, you know, the charity shops are open again, uh, all that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, things are changing because of technology and, and all the rest of it, but, but that's a slightly different set of issues. On, on that point, you were talking about the, the power imbalance. It's interesting because I, I suppose my one of, one of my many mantras, I'm a man of many mantras, is that being donor-centred when it comes to fundraising. And, and you know, really the donor, you know, what they want is prime. It's, it's the key thing. I was then having another conversation uh, with, a, with another contributor, and um, they said, well, that's not necessarily the right way of looking at it because – then the donor is the one saying this is what you should do and in some cases the the more money there is at stake the more risk i think there is isn't there of uh, charities bending to the will of that donor and really that isn't the most important thing what the beneficiary needs maybe there's a bit of a mixed bag there no i think that's absolutely right right sam i mean people sometimes talk about um mission drift yeah in charities and sometimes it, it, it particularly gets gets talked about in terms of contracts. So a charity will uh, see a contract out from somebody in the public sector and they will bid for it. And it wasn't really what they wanted to do. But, you know, hey, there's some money and you might make a little bit of surplus on it. Um, and then over time, you've suddenly ended up switching away from what you really meant to do. Yeah. But I think you're right. I think it happens with donors, too. I mean, it's it's difficult because, you know, you need funding to survive. Um, and how much are you prepared to be twisted away from it by a particular donor who wants to fund X, you know, mm. and they don't want to fund the main thing you want to do. They want to fund this other thing. I think the danger happens that, that you then, the whole organisation switches away from what it originally tended to do. And we find, Sam, that when we do strategy consulting for a lot of charities, one of the problems they've got is they've got very confused as to what it was they were trying to achieve. Right. And that's why we use theory of change a lot. You know, we have lots of guidance about how to do theory of change on, mm-hmm. on our website, free stuff. Oh, but, but what the theory, what it often does is it, it, it often helps a charity think, well, go back to what the hell were we trying to achieve? Mm. What did we think we would do that would help achieve that? And we always query that and say, well, why did you think that would lead to that? And then often, because they've got mixed up, because they took a bit of funding here, it just happened to be around, they had a bit of a donor here, they had a contract, they've ended up a bit all over the place, quite frankly. And they get a little almost embarrassed when you point out, you know, you say you're trying to do this, that's your mission. So why on earth have you seen to have half your staff doing something completely different that's nothing to do with it? So... I mean, it's a difficult world running a charity and you have to be, you can't be holier than now on this stuff. You've got to be pragmatic. Um, and that, and that, is, that is what, you know, um, leaders have got to do, decide when, you know, we're, we're, going to take the, we're going to take that funding, even if it's not really quite what we wanted to do. But, you know, it allows us to do a bit of what we wanted to do. And, you know, it, it lets us live to fight another day. 
And I, I guess also that that kind of notion opens them up to the having building a, a longer term relationship with a supporter who whether maybe maybe also the issue is not actually being open and honest and saying that we need that that funding, but rather than this, we need it for this and having the courage to take that chance to actually say, no, I'm not going to give you the, the funding at all. Um, or building the relationship over a longer period of time where you can move that person or that those donors over to your line of thinking to, to really support your core work. I mean, I, I think it's a really good point, Sam. I mean, one of the things we, we advise philanthropists as well, and we would like the philanthropists to be, if you like, progressive in, the, in that sort of sense of the word and funding difficult things and thinking about racial and other issues on, on it. And, you know, there's a debate because sometimes people who are fresh to philanthropy, they've made their money or whatever or inherited or whatever's happened. And, you know, the idea that they'll jump straight to being a brilliant philanthropist in the first step is, is not on. Sure. But if we can work with them a bit, and they get to know us and so on. Then over time, they become a good philanthropist. And we've got quite a few examples of that. So mm. it's the same sort of thing. You know, do you, uh, you know, go perfection in the first round or say, hang on, this is a continuing relationship. And once we've got a relationship and a, a bit of trust, we can then start saying, you know, in your example, you say, you know, it's great you funded that thing. But the thing we really needed funding is this. And then by then they know you better and they kind of trust you. And they think, well, if you're mm. saying that, that's something I want to listen to. It's a difficult, it's a difficult game, particularly, you know, if the money's looking pretty tight, you know, and you just say, hey, somebody's come over the horizon offering us some money and it's not really what we wanted to do, but we're going to take it. You know, that's that's life, isn't it? that you're doing and it's, it's great you you know I've, I've gone through your website well not all of it but I've looked over your website recently and there's so much stuff on there that I think our listeners are really going to appreciate and there's so many free resources so uh, we're going to signpost people to that but in terms of um you know all of these challenges that we're facing challenges the charities are facing but the work that you're doing with with philanthropists and and, and other groups are you getting any kind of sense that we are coming out the other side of it? Or do you think it's going to get harder before it gets easier? What's your view? I think, I mean, it, 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 to be honest, it's very hard to work it out at the moment um, but from official statistics or surveys or even our own sort of uh, work. But I do think, I mean, you know, it, it certainly worries me, these statistics on the number of charities. And this was quite big charities, the Charity Commission data, over half a million turnover and there was a very big increase in the number that had zero uh, or negative reserves now you know sometimes you know you can build them up again but I, I wouldn't be surprised if 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 quite a lot of those charities are having troubles mm. um, and that's you know and that is worrying um, charities tend not to go bust it's not like businesses which literally go bust charities tend to sort of go slightly dormant to the extent it leads to some charities saying, you know what, it's time for us to merge with another local one that's doing something similar. Some of that would be a good thing to do. I, I mean, we've, we've always encouraged that. Not that there'd be hundreds of these things, but sector's very reluctant to do it, uh, to be honest. Um, partly because, you know, if you set up your charity, the last thing you want to do is merge with someone else. Um, and boards don't like it either. They quite like being on the boards, the trustees. And so on. So if we got some of that, it'd be good. But I mean, ultimately, I mean, I've worked in all the sectors, Sam, and you know, I've always found that the charity sector is, on the one hand, very nervous about its future, and on the other hand, in my view, it's incredibly resilient sector. 
you know, because people will keep wanting to do good and they will do their best out there and people will volunteer or they'll work in charities for less money than they could get somewhere else because they're passionate about it. I mean, we will always be there and we'll always be doing good. What a great note to end on. Dan Corey, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Thank you very much, Sam. It's been great fun. big thank you there to Dan Curry for sharing his insights and expertise with us. We hope to speak with Dan and his colleagues at MPC again throughout the next year or so on a series of interesting and thought-provoking topics. Dan talks about how the pandemic has seen grant funders specifically changing to more unrestricted funding and the hope that this will continue to be the case. We've spoken of course with other contributors on the show about this, including the likes of Alex Blake. And there is a desire from charities to have the flexibility to use funds where they are needed most. This is often only possible with a substantial level of unrestricted funding. Dan also talks about the challenge that charities have in reporting to multiple grant makers. And many trust fundraisers will know the pain of reporting in multiple ways to meet the requirements of many funders. Perhaps now is the time to speak to your funders to see if they will accept a more consistent time and cost-saving report in the context of the very difficult times we find ourselves in. Also, having a diversity of fundraising streams will help charities to weather fundraising storms. We know this. Of course, it's easier said than done, especially for small charities with very limited resource. Building relationships, though, with donors, funders or fundraisers and moving them to become more long-term supporters does take time and charities need to weigh meeting the funders' funding criteria with delivering effectively for their beneficiaries. It's a difficult balance, the solid stewardship, honesty, openness and investment of time to understand the donor or funder or fundraiser and helping them to understand your cause is surely the answer. How you do this, especially with limited resource, is again a challenge, but well worth the effort. And I would recommend listening back to our podcasts on donor journeys and impact reporting to find out more. Dan has a background in working in and with government and local authorities and talks about seeing charities and the local authority working more closely together to deliver in the midst of the COVID crisis. He also warned, though, that there is a risk that we might be reverting to working separately again. So what can charities do to drive engagement with their local authorities over the coming months and years? How can we demonstrate the value of our work and what it brings to so many of the social challenges that the local authority are also seeking to address, albeit with insufficient funding, just like us? There's also tension between the government and the charity sector at the moment, which Dan and his team are working on, to bring charity voices into policy decision-making at government level. In terms of the government's levelling up agenda, charities that work on employability and prosperity, including involvement in the labour market, need to be ready to be part of this conversation. The notion of creating social capital and the feeling of civil society, Dan says that charities and social organisations are crucial to creating this. However, the current funding and rhetoric of investing in infrastructure isn't enough. You need social investment too, and who better to assist in advising government on where to best focus this investment than the charities that are daily working with those most vulnerable in our society. 
Speaking with Dan, it strikes me that the work that is being done by the government and local authorities to bring society out the other side of the impacts of the pandemic will only be successful at delivering a better society if charities and civil society as a whole are involved in the design and implementation of this. We can all see the difficulties that we face in the charity sector, but I took some solace from something Dan said, that he had worked in all sectors, but that the charity sector is resilient because people will keep wanting to do good and they will do their best out there and they will volunteer or they'll work in charities for less money than they can get elsewhere because they're passionate about it. We will always be there and we will always be doing good. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear from you either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, fundraising platform, Work For Good, who are inviting charities to get in the Christmas spirit by joining the hashtag small business star match funding campaign. This year, there's a £50,000 match pot to help charities maximise the impact of sales-based festive fundraising. Head to their websites, workforgood.co.uk, to sign up for free. We'd also like to thank Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aximit, for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk and Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.